This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 3rd, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So maybe you're listening to this on July 4th, or maybe you're just getting psyched up for July 4th by reading and rereading the Declaration of Independence or sitting in a stifling Philadelphia public space drinking ale. Well, stop. Full stop. In fact, they've discovered a mistaken full stop in the Declaration. So we know grammatically that the punctuation at the end of a phrase that is a declaration is a period. But does the period belong in the declaration? Here's what I mean. The Library of Congress produces an official text of the Declaration of Independence taken from the real thing that reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But no, Don't stop there. A researcher has found that the sentence is supposed to go on. There's not supposed to be a period there. It was a stray mark, she says. So the sentence was supposed to read, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And by happiness, I, of course, mean Governor Morris's wife's favorite mare, who is oft untethered from her bridal. Oh, happiness, we beseech ye, return to the paddock. Anyway, King George, blah, 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 blah. All right, yes, no, that's not what it says. Here's what it really does say. It's a little less exciting than the horse thing. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the government that whenever... I'm going to stop there, but the document does not stop there. It just gallops on and on and on like Governor Morris's wife's mare. The thing's a run-on. It needs a period. And if we're going to be super literal about the declaration, shouldn't it read, when in the corf of human events... It becomes necessary for one people to defolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to affoom among the powers of the earth. Yeah, I know. That's, it's called the long S. But the S's look like an F in the Constitution. So we're going to get all technical about the period. But there are a bunch of different declarations, and they seem to say different things. It seems an open-ended question. Although the New York Times, which first reported this, or at least where I first read it, does note that this smudge or non-smudge, I don't know, maybe a fly landed on it, could we check the DNA? The Times says that uh, it's unlikely to quell the never-ending debate about the deeper meaning of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, I will concede that. That which was quilled cannot easily be quelled. So on the show today, that Facebook study that supposedly manipulated emotions, we're going to ask... Is that bullshit? And in the spiel, it's another and 10 twig. You know what that means. And if you don't, we will tell you. Also, lurid tease will discuss hot black singles. That's right. The phrase hot black singles will come up in the spiel. But first, one of the most memorable speeches of the century was delivered 75 years ago, July 4th. We'll examine what Lou Gehrig did after that speech. On July 4th, 1939, Lou Gehrig stood before a Yankee Stadium crowd and famously said, 
For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. The words rang out. They came to literally define Gehrig, who could be so brave in the face of the disease that would come to bear his name. But to consider the true character of Gehrig, consider not only those words, but consider the job he took in the time, in the 23 months between that speech and his death. Joining me now is Jonathan Eig, author of Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, how are you? Good. I am obsessed with Lou Gehrig as a baseball player. Why don't you tell me, other than the longevity streak that he was baseball's Iron Man, what's the most impressive baseball fact or stat that pops out to you about Lou Gehrig? One is I think he's, he's underrated as a ball player, as a hitter in particular. I think that if he continued his career and, and played a few more years, four or five more years, which he probably would have, he'd be remembered as maybe the greatest hitter of all time. Certainly there'd be comparisons with Ted Williams. you got to remember he was hitting 340 when he retired, and that was after a season that he played with ALS. Yep. He had 490 home runs, uh, You know, had the record for RBIs, and you add five good years to that, You know, he's got well over 600 home runs, maybe close to 700. He's got an RBI record that nobody can touch without steroids many years later, and he's got an average in the low 330s. I think you've got to consider him maybe the greatest hitter of all time. So I think he's, he's underrated, if, if, if that's possible to even imagine. I absolutely agree. And you say if he played five more years. You know, if he played five more weeks, he definitely would have had over 2,000 RBI. And there's only three guys in the history of baseball who did that, and he would have been the first. And he would have had 500 home runs, which now is a little common. There are, I think, 26 guys in the club. But it was just Babe Ruth and then... Jimmy Fox and Mel Ott. So he, for years and years and years, absolutely, just a few more weeks, he would have reached those milestone numbers. The other thing that's important to remember is that he played an entire season with ALS, which is the opposite of steroids. His muscles were melting away from this disease as he played. He played every game. He hit 295, 114 RBIs, 29 homers on the opposite of steroids. I think it's the, that was maybe the greatest season in the history of, of baseball for any individual. And so Gehrig dies less than two years after that speech. In the meantime, what he did and the job he took, to me, is unfathomable. But I think it says a lot about the time and definitely about Lou Gehrig. Why don't you tell me about his career path, if you will? Well, you know, Gehrig made this speech and told the fans that he was leaving. And a lot of them didn't really understand that he was dying. You know, people didn't really understand ALS back then. And Gehrig knew he was dying. And then the doctors tried to give him some false hope. They told him, you know, maybe you can beat this. You know, he's working on some experimental treatments. And, you know, he didn't just lay down and and take this. He subjected himself to every quack experiment that he could get his hands on because he approached this thing the way he approached baseball. He was just going to work hard and try to beat it. And he was a real hero in, in, in that respect. And when reporters came to him and said, hey, we hear you're part of this new clinical study. How's it going? You're one of the first patients to try this new experimental treatment. He said, well, it's not working for me, uh, but I think it might work in the future for other people. So if they can learn something from me, God bless them. And, and you know, that's just took incredible strength to do that. The other thing people forget is that Garrick actually took a job after he retired from baseball. He was hoping that he'd live for a while, and 
he didn't want to just sit around. He didn't want to just sit in the dugout and, and cheer. He, he wanted to do something with his life. So he became a parole commissioner for the city of New York, working with troubled kids. That is amazing. I think it says something different about what we thought of parole and redemption. But this wasn't just a title. He wasn't an ambassador for the parole commission or the probation department. He went to work like every day. He went to work every day in a suit and a tie and sat behind a desk and went out to the prison. And I'll tell you, the only reason he stopped was because the elevator operators in New York City went on strike and he couldn't walk up the stairs anymore because he was so sick. And when Lou Gehrig was a probation officer, he comes across this 19-year-old kid, an angry kid named Rocco Barbella. Maybe we know him better because he went on to become Rocky Graziano, the middleweight boxing champion of the world. And what was their interaction like? Rocco was an angry kid. He was you know, furious to be in detention. Uh, he was having a lot of troubles as a youth. And and he gets this visit from the legendary Lou Gehrig. But, you know, suddenly the legendary Lou Gehrig doesn't look like quite the iron horse anymore. His muscles are melting away. His suit doesn't fit. His tie is hanging around his neck. But he gave Graziano words of encouragement. He said to him, you know, you can be a better person. You can be a, you know, you can be a better man. And, and I think it made a real impact on him. Was it well known what he was doing? Did he want publicity for it, for the department, for the you know issue of troubled youths? How was the last part of his life as a probation officer covered at the time? No, he didn't get a lot of attention for it. He didn't want attention for it. I think he was a little bit embarrassed about his physical condition. That you know he had a hard time even just gripping the pen at work and signing documents. He had to start stamping his name on documents. And this is not a publicity stunt at all. The city of New York did not use this as a publicity stunt. And you got to remember, Garrick had been offered jobs where he could have just been a greeter at a restaurant. He could have just you know, hung around the Yankee front office, but he wanted to do something useful. He actually studied for this job. When the mayor appointed him, he said, I'm, not, I'm only going to do it if, if we're going to do it right. So he asked the mayor if he could borrow some law books, if he could borrow books on troubled youth and on juvenile detention so that he could become an expert in the subject. And that was classic Garrick. He was such a stoic. He took everything so seriously, and he really always wanted to do his best. The job paid $5,700 a year. He eschewed media attention, and he worked at that job up until about a month before his death. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Can you imagine an athlete today taking a civil service job because they want to do something useful, not for the money, not because they have to pay their alimony, not for any uh, ulterior motives, just because he wants to do some good for the public. I mean, it's beautiful. Do you think but for the luckiest man speech, he would have been remembered by baseball aficionados and some New Yorkers. How much did that speech play into the heroism, especially when you consider the true heroism that he showed in his life after walking away from the game? The speech was really important because until that moment, people had assumed that Garrett was just a piece of dry toast, that he was a great ball player with no personality. And the reporters all kind of resented the fact that he never gave them any good quotes, never had anything interesting to say, never created any headlines, never fought for a bigger contract like Ruth and DiMaggio did. You know, he was boring for the, for the, for the writers in the press box. And, and as a result of that, they kind of just left him alone. They, they didn't dislike him because he was such a sweet guy, but they, they, they took him for granted for sure. And then he makes this speech, and you, you can even read in the papers that day, the reporters say, wow, we really missed something in Garrick. There was a lot more here to him. You know, this, to be able to make a speech like that, to be able to call yourself lucky when you find out you're dying, takes a kind of courage that, that we didn't really see in him before, and it was there all along. We missed it. Jonathan Eig, author of Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Garrick. Thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thank you.
It was revealed this week that in 2012, Facebook manipulated the moods of its users. Researchers there tweaked the news feeds of hundreds of thousands of users without telling them. Today, the Wall Street Journal quoted a member of the group that ran these studies, the data science team, saying there was no review process per se. They're always trying to alter people's behavior. Well, this got users upset. They felt manipulated. But did this study actually prove that the manipulation worked. Joining me now is Maria Konnikova, who writes for The New Yorker and studies studies for us so that she could pass judgment in our recurring game of, is this bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. Could you take us through what this study was attempting to prove? This study was looking at a phenomenon that's very well known in social psychology called emotional contagion, which means that I am likely to catch whatever emotion the people around me have. And this goes back to a study that was done by Stanley Schachter back in the 1960s that was one of the first pieces of evidence for emotional contagion. And he actually gave people adrenaline shot injections and had different actors act either happy or mad or just enact different emotions next to them. And what he saw was that they would mirror whatever emotion it was. And after that, um, it's been shown even without the adrenaline. So you don't even necessarily need adrenaline for emotional contagion. But what they were trying so to... it is fun to have adrenaline. It is fun <laughs> to have adrenaline. Although, you know, the levels he used yeah. are so off the charts. Yeah. If you look at the study today, right. he was basically pumping those people <laughs> yeah. up to... Insane yes. highs. Well, a few, a few of his uh, <laughs> subjects actually turned green, smashed the New Mexico <laughs> desert, and joined the Avengers. But they don't write about that, do they? And so the reason they wanted to study it with Facebook is there's that old complaint, you know, seeing all these people who are so happy on Facebook bums me out. Actually, usually it doesn't work the other way. You don't hear it like everyone's morose on Facebook. You hear it that I can't keep up with uh, the glee on Facebook. Talk about how they did the study and was it ethical, do you think? Well, the first thing that they did was basically tweak the algorithm. So they looked at positive and negative words and they had a, just a content analysis to do this. So it didn't really matter what the context of the word was. It could be that I'm happy now or I ate a happy meal. Mm -hmm. And either one of those posts would be tagged as happy positive post. Okay. And so for some people, they would let more of those through and hide some of the negative ones. You know, the I ate a sad meal. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. Or after eating five ha happy meals, I was not I, so I was happy. not yeah. so happy, exactly. Or they did the opposite. So they upped the number of negative posts you saw by making sure that you saw those and didn't see the ones that were more positive. And they varied the percentages of these, and they did a pretty good control to make sure that everyone was getting a good mix. They had a number of control groups in there because, as you point out, more people say positive things on Facebook. Right. It's a two-to-one ratio they found. Uh, they, so they didn't go in, they didn't change the words of anyone else's posts. No. They just eliminated some posts that you would yep. see. And kind of Facebook does that all the time. Their algorithm isn't just to show you everything. That's right. I mean, I think the real ethical concern is, did they really manipulate people's emotions? And if they're making people sad... That's an ethical consideration that the IRB or the Institutional Review Board should have been apprised of. But really making people a little sad, like a little tiny bit bummed out over not seeing a couple happy Facebook posts? Well, if they didn't tell them afterwards what they had done, okay. then it's no longer ethical, I according to most Institutional Review Boards. Okay. 
that said, this gets back to your second question, which is what are they actually showing? Yeah. I don't think they showed anything about emotion. Well, what did they say they showed? They said it was a successful study. They They said, they even said the people who did the study, given the outcry and how much anxiety it caused, maybe we would have done it differently. But they say, but still, it shows some uh, really interesting emotional contagion. Right. Well, it's funny. I think they probably did cause more anxiety by publishing the study than they ever caused in the study itself at the time. But... What they show is that one out of every 1,500 words over the course of a week is changed, is affected by this manipulation. So there'll be one more positive or one more negative word than there would normally be. And if you think about that, that's not very many words. Yeah. And the fact that you change a word to a positive or negative word doesn't mean you're feeling positive or negative. So it's not actually saying anything about emotion. And what do the emotional contagion researchers say about non-online interactions, real-life interactions. Someone else's emotions affect yours in ways we wouldn't think? Yeah, there is a good amount of evidence for emotional contagion in real life, starting with babies. You know how infants can really sense if you're tense, they can sense if you're happy. If a baby starts crying randomly when you pick it up, chances are that you're just really nervous and the baby knows that this person thinks that she's going to drop me. Um, and then it that's at a very basic level, and that's the same process that we go through as adults. It's kind of part of empathy. So when I see that you're in pain, I start feeling pain too. And I'm activating the parts of my brain that get activated if I were being stuck with the pin that I'm now sticking into you. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have any pins. But you made me nervous for a second. (laughs) So, So that definitely exists. That said, there's a lot of individual difference in that, which means that some people are much more susceptible than others. And there are some people who probably would never catch someone else's mood. It really just depends on the social cues and what kind of person you are. Manipulating people's Facebook feeds to actually affect their emotion. Is that bullshit? That is absolutely bullshit. (laughs) I like that. All right. And you know what? As we were talking, I thought that, you know, sometimes you go out with an interesting song. So I was thinking maybe we'd go out with uh, the Rolling Stones' Emotional Rescue, Emotional Contagion, Emotional Rescue. I never really realized this. Let me read a lyric to Emotional Rescue. You ready? You think you're one of a special breed. You think that you're his Pekingese. I'll be your savior, steadfast and true. I'll come to your emotional rescue. Maria Konnikova, the Rolling Stones writing about pet Pekingese in their lyrics. Is that bullshit? No, not at all. (laughs) Thank you. She's an expert. She writes for The New Yorker and joins us to play that bullshit, Maria Konnikova. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Mike. The spiel and time for another N10 twig. Yeah, these are our tri-weekly, meaning every three weeks, check-in with corrections, salvos, and spasms of selfish shaming. So let me start off by saying I was wrong. I called Walter Dellinger a judge. He was a former solicitor general. I referred to Eleanor Kagan. This is Eleanor Kagan. Hey, this is Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. She hosts a very nice podcast. It's called Bonnie and Maud. It's about movies. She's a nice person. Andrea and I are both friends with her. But I meant Alana Kagan the Supreme Court Justice, Alana Kagan. 
One day I was speaking of Wales, and I called it a part of England. I know, I know it's not. I teach my kids the difference between England and Great Britain. It's part of the Lil Vexillologist training methods. I know, no, 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 there is an entity called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I know that Great Britain is part England, Scotland, and Wales. I understand your sensitivities, though I think whoever said this was like confusing Iran and Iraq went a little too far. It might be like confusing West Virginia and Virginia, but maybe not. I don't want to step on your toes again. Sorry, Wales. You'll always have Gareth Bales. I also said JDL instead of ADL a few times. I was talking about the Anti-Defamation League, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, not the Jewish Defense League. But by the way, I'm going to give the ADL some advice. Why are you always calling yourself the ADL? Don't you want to be more proactive, forward-looking? Why not, instead of just noting the bad things that people say, why not celebrating the good things people say? Why not the Jewish Commendation League, the Jewish Exaltation League? You know, when someone says something nice about the Jews, you could call yourself, here's a good one, the Hebraic Union of Zestfulness, Zeal, and Harmony. Huzzah! Right? You get a press release from the ADL. You're like, oh, they're going to complain about someone's being defamed. You get a press release from Huzzah. It's like, who said something nice about Jews today? Amari Stoudemire complimented the Jews. Vladimir Putin complimented the Jews. Thanks, Huzzah. Those were all mistakes of commission. Now I'm going to cop to a mistake of omission. A couple of weeks ago, I missed that story about Phil Collins donating his huge collection of Alamo memorabilia to the Alamo. And that would have been a great occasion for me making many false claims wherein I would pair a famous battle site to a light rock legend. For instance, I could have said that Loggins and Messina, they have the original floorboards to the Appomattox Courthouse where the Civil War truce was signed. Or I could have said that Seals and Croft have the largest private collection of Fort Ticonderoga ephemera. Did you know Lionel Richie remembers the main? No, you don't, because I missed the chance. But what I will do is this. During my research on Light Rock, I came across the video of the song Break My Stride. Everyone calls it Break My Stride because that's how Matthew Wilder sang it. I'm going to post this video of Matthew Wilder singing Break My Stride on the TV show Solid Gold, facebook.com slash slate gist. The video is amazing. It demands deep, almost frame-by-frame analysis. First of all, there are three keyboard players in Matthew Wilder's band. Second of all, Matthew Wilder is wearing a shirt with snaps on it. Okay, so imagine a crew neck t-shirt. But then imagine I put two metal snaps right along the neck, and you could detach these snaps, or you could detach the shirt, fold it down in a triangle, and affix it to a more central part of the shirt. So that means you have to wear a second shirt under your triangle shirt. This is how Matthew Wilder does it. And Matthew Wilder looks like, well, on YouTube, the commenters say he looks like Super Mario or Gallagher. No, 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 no. Not more so than any other pretty short, jerry-curled, mustachioed white guy with a largest nose does. So stop your stereotyping. But fellows like Matthew Wilder, with challenges sartorial, tonsorial, and a song catalog that's musically incorporeal, have relied on a certain strategy from time immemorial camouflaging, 
you wear a hat, you wear a bright scarf, or in Matthew Wilder's case, you surround yourself with seven, yes, seven solid gold dancers outfitted in lime green leotards festooned with round mirrors. So as the YouTube video's commenters blast aspersions, the dancers cast reflections on Wilder, on those many other keyboard players, on the this bodiless bass player. Is that a sitar? Does it only have frets? What's going on there? Who knows? There's no time to tell because here comes the host of Solid Gold to say... All this going on, the dancers, the snap-down shirt, the mirrors, the hostess who just hijacked Matthew Wilder's songs and used it as a music bed, Matthew Wilder remains undeterred. He steps out from behind his keyboard. We see he's wearing leather pants. You know, maybe he's nervous that the other two keyboardists will be insufficient to continue on without him, but he keeps on singing. Do you know why? Do you know why he does this, people? He does it because ain't nothing gonna break a his stride. Oh, no. Nothing did Matthew Wilder's stride break while he was charting on the pop, dance, and adult contemporary chart. It did not. The song even charted on the hot black singles chart. It's now the R&B and hip-hop chart. I tried Googling Wilder hot black singles. I did not get the results I was anticipating. And there was a disco remix version of the song that went to number one in Austria and New Zealand. It was recorded by a group called... Unique 2, one of a kind, the sequel. I think that literally is a joke from Spinal Tap. You know, I could talk Break My Stride forever, but I gotta keep on moving. On to the lobstar of the Anten Twig. Our best listener, our best commentator, our best gentle corrector, a true agistionado. And this Anten Twigs Lobstar, well, let me get to the runner-up first. Should our main Lobstar be unable to fulfill his duties, our runner-up Lobstar will be asked to fill in. And that man is Jason R. Gallagher, who subscribed to Slate Plus using Slate Gist. You know, on the show, we didn't even plug Slate Plus that much. So thanks, Matthew R. Gallagher. We do appreciate you as our runner-up Lobstar. But our main Lobstar, it's Sean Quinn, who caught my tossed-off reference Keep instructing that chicken. That was a viral video based on something a local newscaster said. I never know if those sort of things will land. So when they do and someone hears them and tweets to us or lets us know on Facebook, I really do appreciate it. And that's why Sean Quinn is the lobstar of this Anten Twig. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is not only producer of Slate Podcasts, she composed Angel in the Morning while watching the sunrise over Fort McHenry during the War of 1812. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, blissfully hummed several Peebo Bryson tunes while fighting off the Zulus at Rourke's Drift. You could subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. Let me read a bad one. This podcast comes off as more of a venue for Pesca to share how worldly and smart he is and how great his vocabulary is than it is a well-rounded current events daily. And please, please, please don't ask him to sing. I'm giving it three stars for potential and effort, and I am taking away one star for his despoiling of a Gordon Lightfoot classic. So let me just say this. Here's what I got out of that pretty bad review. You think I have a good vocabulary, and since you use the word despoiling, I'll take it. And let me balance that with a a positive review. One Button Man writes, 
I look to podcasts to inform me about events I'd not be aware of. The tempo is fast, but still covers some interesting topics and guests. Great job. You can check us out on facebook.com slash slate gist. You can email us directly at the gist at slate.com. We would like to send you an email, but we can't contact you. You have to make the first step. Go to slate.com slash gist email, and that way we will send you an email as soon as the show is ready. And if I have to crawl upon the floor, come crashing through your door, baby. I have not yet begun to fight this feeling anymore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.